here we are now with another episode for the series Finding Other Worlds, a commentary on the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And I believe we're up to episode 10, if I'm not mistaken. And we begin here, now, today, and now, (laughs) and now, (laughs) on the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So, there's a lot in this one. I don't know how long it will take us to get through it. Probably probably two episodes. I mean, most of these books have taken... We've spent about two episodes on each one so far. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how I feel. We'll see how you feel. Will you see how you feel? So I'd like to start this part, today's conversation, with talking a little bit about art and imagery. Now, I'd like us to appreciate how different things were before the age of the screen, before the age of television and computers and smartphones and also cinemas would be another big category within that. And I'd like us just to appreciate, just to imagine how an image can affect you, how an image can go into you, how an image can give you an experience. Now, these days we have all sorts of visual effects and high-definition screens which are highly captivating. They're really enticing for the eyes. They really suck you in. They really draw you in. Now, with this modern conditioning, with this modern screen culture that we're living in, it's hard to appreciate how a painting could affect someone. How the imagery of paint on the canvas can have an impact And that's exactly what I want us to appreciate. That's exactly what I'd like us to understand. Now, these days, fine art, the the medium of painting, has a very different standing in our culture as to how it did in the past. Very different. And... It's a rich history. It's a vast history. There's so much in art. And essentially, I'd like us to know that, well, it's hard these days, really, for a painting to make an impact. And I believe that's because of our screen conditioning. I believe that's because of how things are with the technologies that are around us. And I wish, well, what do I wish? I wish it was more known 
and more understood just how screens affect the mind, just how in so many ways negative the conditioning of screens are on the mind, and also how as a component of that, screens ruin one's ability to be affected by more subtle, more fine, more nuanced things such as paintings, such as going to an art gallery and being able to stand in front of a painting and be moved. Now, these days, we do also have this thing of the difference between imagery and painting. And it is such that the painters that do well are actually good at imagery. They compose the image, they compose the subject in such a way as that actually it can be translated into something on the screen. And many artists today are sort of contending with the age of the screen in many different ways, lots of different ways. There's a whole array of different things of what the age of the screens means for art and how that has changed art. But I don't want us to lose this thing of how things were back in the day. I don't want us to underestimate what it means to actually be sensitive to the sights and the things that are going into your eyes. And I myself have had the experience of being simply dumbstruck by a painting. There was an occasion when I was walking through an art gallery and a painting so grabbed me that I was stuck. I was just struck. I was completely unable to move or think or do anything for something like a good 20 minutes. And in that moment, well, I was transported to another world. I was brought into something that was so far beyond anything that I could have ever imagined or conceptualized or dreamed for myself, that it was exactly like suddenly being reared into another world. Now, you can say that art comes from this world. Art is the world. And that's true. But in another sense, art comes from another world. Because it's from another perspective. It's showing you something that you didn't know about this world. So art is, in its purest form, a window into another world. And of course, I've said many things in the past about the destructive nature of screen technologies, and I'll say more about it in the future. But this is what's relevant to today's conversation. And this is because, well... Lucy looks at a painting. So, to catch us up with where this story begins, Peter 
is off studying in a cottage with an older relative and Susan has been sent off to America, so she's now living overseas. Yet another example of going to another world, going to a distant land. And Edmund and Lucy are sent to stay with their cousin. And their cousin is Eustace. And Eustace, well, he's a bit of a bully. He's a bit of a trickster. He's a bit of a not very nice boy to be around. And he's always saying nasty things. He's always saying rotten things. He's always putting people down. He's always calling them names. And he doesn't really have much in common with his cousins, Edmund and Lucy. And they don't really like him either. They don't want him to be around. They don't want him to ruin their fun. It was even the case that Eustace had heard about them talking about Narnia and he had made fun of them. He'd actually said, oh, they're just fairy tales. Oh, you're making up stories again, are you? This sort of thing. So Eustace, well, he's a nuisance. And that's the story of Euston. Eustace. <laughs> His name's going to be tricky to get used to. And one fateful afternoon, Lucy is in the study with Edmund. And she's looking at this painting, and Eustace comes in. And he says, oh, that's a rotten painting, isn't it? And... Lucy, to her credit, as always, sticks to her guns and she says, no, it's a lovely painting. And he says, well, what do you like so much about it, if it's so good? And she starts describing it. She starts saying, look at the details. And of course, what this painting is of is of a ship. And they had been speculating just before Eustace came in whether it was a Narnia ship. And she describes it. She says, just look at the waves. Look at the shape of the sails. It's so realistic. It's so vibrant. It's almost like it's coming to life. And as she's describing it, and Edmund and Eustace are listening along, well, something starts happening in the room. It starts to become like, well, it is coming to life. And Eustace, well, he has a bit of a, reaction to this. He says, stop it. What are you doing? Something's happening. And Lucy, well, she goes along with it. And she knows a little bit about magic, so she grabs hold of them. And there's a muffle and a buffle and a bang and a ka-chang and a bling-dung-doo-ba. And all of a sudden, they have found themselves in the ocean, swimming for their lives. And the ship itself is sailing by. And someone calls out and says, man overboard, and they kick and they swim and they make their way up onto the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, of course, for Edmund and Lucy, they're delighted because they are back in Narnia. 
And they even find that, well, they meet up with Prince Caspian, who's in charge of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in this expedition. And they think, ah, wow, how long has it been? And they say only a year has passed. Or so, since... I think it was something like a year had passed for Lucy and Edmund and a couple of years had passed for Prince Caspian. So he's been king for a while now. He's a little bit older, but not so far out of memory that he doesn't remember them. Not that he would ever forget them for what they've done for him. So it's this joyous thing, right? And they make friends and they meet the crew. But Eustace, my goodness, Eustace. He does not understand anything that is going on. He starts complaining. He starts bickering. He starts saying, oh, this isn't a real ship. He starts saying, where's my food? And as he's introduced to the some of the crew, well, one of the members is Reapy Cheap. And if you remember Reapy Cheap from a previous novel, he was the mouse he was one of the mouse leaders, sort of the king of the, the mice. And, of course, when Eustace meets Reapy Cheap, he sort of gives him a sneer and he's like, oh, who are you? I don't like you from the very beginning. Which is incredible when you really think about it because he's a talking mouse. He's a talking animal. Can you believe that? You've first come across a talking animal, and what does Eustace do? He just sneers and jickers, and he has no interest at all, and he really is against him. Euston also tries to explain, well, you know, who's in charge here? And they say, well, King, Cas- King Caspian is in charge. And of course, he's sort of all up because Lucy and Edmund, well, they're sort of kings as well, they're royalty as well. And he sort of says, well, are you Republican? I'm Republican. And someone sort of looks at him and says, what, what on earth are you talking about? What is a Republican? That doesn't make any sense at all. So he's in a completely different world and there's magic around him and he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even see what's happening. And really, the arc of the character of Eustace, well, that's really what we want to watch closely. He's very much the key character to all of this. So, that is how things turned out for Eustace. Now, it comes out that what they're sailing for is to find these old relatives, these old lords, and there's seven of them, and they don't know what is sort of beyond the ends of the east. It's sort of uncharted territories. They know there are islands and there are things that are unexplored that they can come to, but they really plan to go as far as they can until they until they find, pardon me, these seven lords that were relatives to Caspian. So that's their mission. How do we find these lords? And 
and they dry themselves off and they make themselves comfortable. And that's really the voyage of the dawn treader. So one day, Eustace gets the idea to pull the tail of this mouse and swing him around a bit. Now, if you know Reapy Cheap, he's all about honour. He's all about respect, right? He's got a bit of the short man syndrome where he demands the respect of others. So for him to be picked up and swung around by his tail by this guy is not very nice, and he is very upset about it. But of course, Reapy Cheap, he's not just any mouse. He's not willing to put up with it. So he pulls out his sword and hits him on the hand. And Eustace has to drop him, right? Now, once this is done, Reapy Cheap stands up, dusts himself up, and points his sword right at Eustace. And he says, You dare to fight me for a free duel? For a, for a open duel? For a fair fight? And Eustace is sort of like, Well, what are, you, what are you talking about? I was just playing. Can't you take a joke? And Reapy Cheap, well... He hits him with the flat of the sword. He beats him and he says, Come on, let's fight. I deserve to have my honour respected. I deserve to have my dignity upheld. So let's fight. So Eustace, well, what is he going to do? What does he do? Well, he runs back to the cabin where Prince Caspian is and Edmund and Lucy are and he says, Well, this mouse wants to fight me. Now, this is the shock. This is the first big shock that Eustace has. Because he's a bully, because in his normal world he's used to picking on people, he hasn't ever had to contend really with the consequences, right? Because either he's bullied people and he's been bigger than them, or he's just been able to get out of it. And then also... Well, not either. It's not either or, but he's either. He has bullied them and... See, what am I trying to say? He's bullied them and got out of it or bullied them and been bigger than them. And then furthermore, when the adults have been involved, they've sort of said, you know, stop fighting. Stop doing that. Now, when it comes to Prince Caspian, he says, well, the mouse has offered you a fair fight and it was provoked by you So now, it's a fair fight. So let us give you a sword, because you don't have a sword, and you can have a fight with him. So Eustace is like, what? I can't use a sword. I can't do any of this. He's way over his head. Now, not only this, but they actually start talking about, well, he's a mouse, and you're a boy, so you've got a height advantage So we should give you a handicap. We should actually tie your arm behind your back or something. So all of a sudden, Eustace has gone from being the bully to actually having to face the consequences of it. And he's met someone who is smaller than him but can easily just outdo him. Like it's so obvious that Reapy Cheap is the warrior, right? Because he's got his boot, he's got his little coat. He's got his hat, he's got his sword, and he knows how to use a sword, right? It's so obvious that Reapy Cheap could just 
cut this guy up so easily. So, in the end, I think Reapy Cheap is just like, oh, well, why should I bother? He's so pathetic, you know, sort of thing, and they don't fight. But that was a hard lesson for Eustace. So, they sail on, and they come to an island, and... They go ashore, some of them go ashore, Caspian and Edmund, Lucy and Eustace. And they get captured by some of the people that are there. And as they're being captured, Prince Caspian sort of says, don't, don't tell them who I am, don't say what's going on, because we don't want our story to get out of who we are. And... They're taken off to the slave markets and someone offers to buy Caspian and he does and he buys him up and they get separated. So Caspian is separated from the others and once Caspian is alone with his new master, his master says, the reason I bought you is because you look like the old Prince Caspian from Narnia. And then, of course, Prince Caspian says, well, that's me. That's who I am. And it's very funny. I think in the movie version of this, the master just laughs at him at first and says, well, isn't that great that you're playing along with that to your own advantage? But as they keep talking, Caspian sort of has his education and his knowledge to sort of back up who he really is because he names the Lord's that he's after, and he says, well, show me my worth in a sword fight, and I'll show you how good I am with a sword. And it comes out that they realize, well, he is Prince Caspian. So what he does then is with the help of his new master, or this man that has bought him as a slave, he goes into town to see who's in charge, to see the governor, right? Because if he's Prince Caspian, he's the, well, sorry, he's King Caspian now, he's not the prince anymore, then he's got rightful rule over this island and he needs to see who's in charge to see if they're upholding the Narnia laws. So he goes to the governor's house and he turns up there, he knocks on the door and there's someone at the door who's sort of just like, go away. No interviews, no meetings, without prior appointment. And he knocks again and insists, and the doorman says, no, no interviews without appointment except between 9 and 10 p.m. on the second Saturday of the month. And this is so funny because it's like, (laughs) it's such a specific time, and it's like 9 to 10 p.m., so Saturday night on the second Saturday of the month. So it's only once a month on a Saturday night that you can actually meet with this guy. And let's be honest, 9 to 10 p.m. on a Saturday night, who's going to be thinking about the governor, meeting with the governor at that time? And Caspian basically works out how to barge his way in. And by this time also, he's actually 
met up with a couple of people who were on his side. So he's got force. He's got some people to support him. And he makes his way into the governor and he starts talking to him. He meets him and he says, well, what's going on here? And he says, no appointments. And then he says, well, why haven't you paid your taxes to Nani? And he says, oh, we couldn't do it. And he said, well, we're going to make sure you do pay your taxes. We're calling them in now. And he says, well, you have to bring that up in a meeting, which will be next month. And he says, well, you don't need to appeal. We are here now to actually forfeit your place as governor if you can't prove that you are rightful and fit for being governor. He says, no, you can't do that until the first of the first day of the year next year is the time for the meeting for that. So every time Caspian sort of talks to this governor, he's got some sort of red tape thing about how there's some law or some meeting or some sort of court of appeal that sort of puts it off. And that's really just it. He's just sort of hemmed himself into a fortress of legalities. He's pushed himself into a whole bunch of red tape as a defense. And what does Caspian do? Well, he picks up the Lord and he throws him off his chair. And he picks up his table, which is covered in all the papers and all the laws and all the red tape, and he just turns it over. And that's Caspian's way of saying, look, this is what I think of your laws. Now, another big part of this is, why is slavery going on? And this man is sort of like, well, we needed slavery for our economy. And Caspian's like, well, it doesn't bring in any value. It's not bringing stock. It's not bringing furniture or any sorts of consumable goods. And he says, where are the slaves going? And he's saying, oh, they're going overseas. And it's like, oh, great. Okay, so it's not even for labor on this land that you're doing the slavery. It's just for your own profit. So Caspian is very much against slavery. He's very much outlawing of the slavery. And then and there, he declares it outlawed. So he heads off from the governor's place directly to the slave market. And there he finds his friends, Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace, and a bunch of others. And he says, I declare every slave in this market free. And that's what Caspian does. He's a man of action. He's a man of doing good. And by this time, well, some others have come ashore from the Dawn Treader, and he's got quite a bit of force. So... He's not just some kid, he's a king, and he's doing what's needed. And of course there are some legalities that need to be worked out because, well, some people had just bought slaves and they need to get their money back. So all of that is sorted out. So they stay there for a while. They reinstate a new governor. And they restock their ship. And they start to ask around, well, Caspian starts to ask around about what is further east? What can you find? And some sailors say, well, there are more islands. There are more islands to come, but further east, well, there's a mystery. So they set sail. And what happens next? 
So a storm comes, and I believe the mast is broken in the storm, which hinders them. And then they are running out of rations because they're sailing so far, and they sort of get to this point where they're getting so low on rations that they can either turn back or they can keep going and hope that they find land. So that's the leap of faith. That's a sort of that's a sort of classic 101 leap of faith, right? So if you sail forwards, you might find land and food and fresh water, but you might also die. If you sail backwards, well, you know what's there, so you'll get some food. So they take the leap of faith and they sail forwards. And Euston, once Euston's once night, one night tries to steal water rations because they're tightly rationed. And he'd done it in the middle of the night and actually Reapy Cheap catches him. He says, what are you doing? Thief. And he turns him in and there's another sort of beef between Reapy Cheap and Eustace. So eventually, to their great luck, they do find land. And they go ashore and they get to exploring. And at first, Eustace doesn't really like this because, well, there's actually a lot of work to do. They've got to find a new mast, they've got to restock, they've got to build supplies, they've got to clean up the ship, they've got to do all sorts of things. So he's sort of like, well, there's a lot of work in this, isn't there? And he just wants to rest and be alone. So he sneaks off. He goes off for a walk. And he notices once he's walking, once he's separated from the others, that he's actually feeling a bit lonely. And there's a contrast here between Eustace being alone, walking around in nature, and Lucy, because Lucy, well, she has a bit of a habit of walking off, as we know. She has a habit of being in nature, being by herself. And she quite enjoys it. She can quite, in fact, gets a lot of magic out of it. In fact, some very important, significant events have happened to Lucy as she's been alone in nature many times, many times before. It's a recurring theme. But for Eustace, well, he goes off and he doesn't really feel very good. And he goes around, he does some exploring, and he comes to a place which is a little bit misty, a little bit dark. And he goes on and he comes to a bit of a valley, a bit of a ditch, a bit of a gully. And he climbs down and he finds himself in a pretty cold, dark place. And it's getting pretty dark now, and then he's wondering, well, maybe the others have forgotten me. Maybe they'll leave me here. Most likely I will actually feel like I want to get back. So he decides he wants to go back, but he sees that the cliff that he's come down is too steep and he can't. So he goes on, As he's going on, he sees what he doesn't know is a dragon. 
And he'd never really read books about dragons, never really heard about dragons. So to him, it was just a big, scary creature. And he hides, makes himself safe, and he watches the dragon as it's coming nearby. And he notices that it's going very slow. It's almost moping about. And the dragon walks along and takes a drink from some nearby water. And then, what did you know? But the dragon falls down dead. And Eustace is there for a long time to make sure that it is dead. But eventually he comes out and he sees that there's a dead dragon. And at this time he is very thirsty, so he gets some water and drinks. And he walks a little bit along to see where the dragon has come from. And what he finds is, of course, there's a whole lot of treasure. And he sees the treasure, he sees the gold, he sees the diamonds. And he puts a bracelet on his arm. And he starts to feel the greed of all the treasure that the dragon has left. And by this time he's getting very tired. And he falls asleep on that treasure. And when he wakes up, something has happened to him. Can you remember what has happened? Do you remember how things turn out for Eustace? Well, it takes him a while to realise. It's quite terrifying for him to realise that he has become a dragon. And the golden bracelet that he'd put on his arm had now become very tight and was actually hurting him. So he went to take a drink from the river, and as he did, he saw his reflection. And he knew without a shadow of a doubt that he had become a dragon. And in that moment, he felt like a monster cut off from the whole human race. And he reflects on what it means for him to be a dragon. The others won't want to talk to him. The others will be afraid of him. How is he ever going to see them again? How are they ever going to accept him again? And he reflects and he thinks and he feels miserable. He gets in touch really with how much of a monster he is. And he even comes to the point where he thinks that just to hear Reapy Cheap's voice, just to see Reapy Cheap, someone who he'd had so much beef with, someone who he'd been so mean to, would be a welcoming thing. To actually be able to be with that mouse again. So he goes out a bit and he realises, well, as a dragon, he can fly. And actually, he enjoys it. So it's not entirely all bad being a dragon. But of course, he does feel lonely. So the others at this time... I've realised that Eustace has gone missing and they've set a party out to 
find him and they're looking all over for him. And there's sort of this cutaway comment where someone says, well, they, they actually come across the dead dragon as well. And some of them say, well, one of them says sort of under their breath, well, maybe he ate Eustace and he got poison from him. And it's like, well, wow, is that what you really think of him? Someone who's been poisoned, someone who is poisoned and someone you sort of almost hope has been eaten by the dragon. So Eustace, he flies down to the beach between them and the boat. And he can't talk to them, but he can nod yes and nod no. And they confront him. And it's actually Reapy Cheap and Lucy that is able to work out that, in fact, this is Eustace. And they first ask, well, are you someone who's been enchanted be, to be a dragon? And they figure that the dragon that was from before was one of the lords that they had been looking for, one of the relatives that their mission was to find. So... They do what they can with Eustace. They talk to him. They try and get what they can from him just by saying yes and no. And as it happens, he actually turns out to be quite useful because when it's cold at night, they can sleep near him and he's quite warm because dragons, well, they have the fire. And when they need to have a fire, he can just breathe and light the fire. And he also gets them this huge tree this big straight tree which they can use as a mast. So there's a lot of useful things. And he realises that, well, it actually feels good to be useful. It actually feels like something that can bring him closer to others. And as the days go on, well, it still hangs over him that he's a monster. He starts to not like being a monster and he realizes he's been a nuance and a new nuisance eustace the nuisance he realizes how he has been on this trip how he's been really just disliking everything and there's also these comments about well okay we know it's eustace but how are we going to take him with us and they're sort of thinking oh could he could he fly along with the ship? Or could we move him onto the side? Or could we make space for him in one of the undergallows? Or maybe we can put him in the boat and drag him behind, this sort of thing. And then they're also thinking, well, even if some of that works, how are we going to feed him? And so Eustace is facing the fact that as a monster... They can't take him with him. He simply can't be a part of the group. And that is a powerful lesson to learn. That is a powerful thing to have illustrated in this story. Which is that if you are a monster, you will be left behind. Even by your brothers and sisters, by your family. Well, they're cousins, they're not brothers and sisters. Even by your family, even by those who are caring, even by those who are understanding, even by those who want 
to help you. They may not be able to help you. So he realizes that he needs to change. And then one night, he's woken. And he's woken by none other than Aslan, who tells him to follow him. And he follows him to a magic pool and explains to him that you need to wash yourself off in this pool and that will restore you. But you first need to undress. You first need to take off your layers. And Eustace starts to take off his scales. Sort of like how a snake takes off its skin. And he takes off all his scales and then he realizes, well, there's another layer. So he takes off his skin again. And then he realizes, well, actually, there's another layer. So he takes off his skin again. And then he realizes, well, it's not far enough. And Aslan says, well, let me. I need to take off this for you. Let me help you. And he takes off another layer, which is even thicker. And it's quite a, it's, it's a little bit gruesome. It's a little bit gory, right? It's almost like he's tearing away the flesh. There's something really unsettling about it. But there's also, at the same time, something freeing about it. There's something opening about it, which is that he's letting go of the bad parts of himself, the lesser parts of himself, the negative parts of himself. So he goes through this process of having his layers removed until he's completely tender completely helpless, and then he goes into this pool and he's born again as a boy. He's brought back to his old self, but not exactly as his old self, right? Because now he's had the inner transformation. Now he's seen what he's been like. Now he's seen the importance of human connection, of understanding others. So he goes back and he first talks to Edmund and he sort of explains all this to Edmund. And, well, Edmund also shares that actually Eustace hasn't actually been that bad compared to how Edmund was the first time he went to Narnia, right? Because Edmund was a traitor. Edmund, Edmund did terrible things when he first came to Narnia. So they now have a bond. And also, actually, Eustace talks with Reepicheep, and they learn to get along and have a lot in common, in fact. And there's many stories that they share between each other about all sorts of things that make them very strong in their bond. So, the other thing is that this transformation for Eustace was really, it was really only the beginning. So, there were still old things that he'd say. He'd still have sort of comments or moments of bitterness. It wasn't like he had this moment and then he was great and all pearly white for the rest of his days. No, 
It was still just the beginning, and he still had the habit of mind and the habit of speech and the habits of his moods, so at least it was the beginning. At least he was in the right direction. At least he was starting to transform. And what it took was, well, a complete transformation, a complete opening, and a complete tearing off of all his layers. So, they sail on, and a big serpent comes out, and then they push the serpent off the boat. And then they sail on again, and they come to another island. And on this island, they are exploring, and they come across a hidden place where there's water flowing. And just by chance, someone happens to notice what is down at the bottom of this well, in this stream, in this spring of water. And they see that, well, there's a golden statue of a man with his arms spread out at the very bottom. And of course they think, wow, gold must be so valuable. Let's see if we can get it out. And then of course another one says, well, it's probably so heavy. You don't know how deep it is. Just let's see how deep it is. And probably even if it isn't that deep, we can't get it out anyway. So Edmund takes a spear and starts to put it into the water. But then all of a sudden he drops it. And Caspian says, well, what did you do that for? And he says, I don't know. I just felt so heavy all of a sudden. And then they look in and they see the spear. And it looks as though it's gold. So they think, well, maybe it's a trick of the light. Maybe it's just how things appear under this water that it is gold. And then, well, someone shouts, get back, get back from the water. And they all think, whoa, whoa, what, what does this mean? What's happening? And then he says, look, splashes of gold. And they see that on one of their boots, there's a little stot of gold and already the leather has started to pull away from it and of course by this time Caspian has to grab something and he slowly puts it into the water and then pulls it out to reveal that all the parts of that object that had been in the water had turned to gold and he says, well, I now claim this island to be of Narnian island. And this actually upsets Edmund. He actually says, well, hang on, I'm the rightful king, so I should have it. And they start to row between each other. And then all of a sudden, Aslan turns up with a roar and a call from the ghostly head that he is. 
And for that moment they realise, what are they doing? Why are they fighting? There's something about this place. There's something about it. There's something enchanted that is making them not clear. So they decide to leave that place. And once they're back on the ship, they realise that, well, they weren't thinking very clearly. And they also realised that that man at the bottom, who had been turned to gold, was another one of those lords. So there was the slave governor, the dragon lord, and the one who got turned to gold. So they continue their journey. And... The next leg of their journey, I think we'll talk about next episode. And the statement, I mean, to really make it explicit what the story there is, is that, well, wealth corrupts. Wealth will drive two people who would normally work together to fight against each other. And you see that so clearly because of how much wealth there is, right? The reason that's so obvious is because of the amount of gold that became available to them. For them to realize in that moment that this water turns anything into gold is to go from one instance having nothing to the next instance having an infinite amount of gold, an infinite supply of gold. And that kind of jump, that kind of difference in circumstances that is so sudden, well, it brought out what it meant for Edmund and Caspian to hold their rankings, to say, well, who's in charge here? Who really has the right to this? So that's a test of their character. And, of course, to say that it's in their character is not quite right because there were enchantments that made them feel this way. There were other forces at work. But I think the image is clear. I think the statement is clear that, well, the more things corrupt, the more wealth you have, the more corrupt you have. Now, of course, that's a tricky one to sort of go behind because wealth isn't always corrupt. I mean, money can be used for good in just the same way as it can be used for bad. And there are people who work well together with great wealth So I don't know if it's really a one-size-fits-all, but the image is there, the statement is there. And all these sort of statements, all these images, they can only be taken as isolated examples and sort of little morals to ponder over. They're not something to live your life by, by any means. And that's why they're put into stories. That's why they're put into... pictures because they're not it's not like it's the Ten Commandments, right? And it's also not like it's a black and white hard and fast rule, 
right? The conclusions that we're drawing from these images, they're just sort of they're just sort of ways of thinking about it. They're just sort of ways of saying, well, why is it interesting? What is it that's so resonating? And what is someone really trying to say? And when someone says something, furthermore, you must realize that it's only for really the moment. It's only really for what is happening within the context of the story, within the context of what's going on, and also within the context of the culture and the times that it was. So definitely don't take me as someone who is an anti-materialist or anything like that. Or an I'm not by any means against wealth building or wealth creation. These sort of issues, well, now... We have much more complex understandings of these things. We have capitalist systems. We have the free market. We have information and technological boom and all sorts of complex world economies. So these sorts of images don't really fit to that. They don't really have much to say about that. They can only really, they can only really express so much within the space that they have. So to acknowledge the finite nature of these images is to see the limits of them. And yet also that's to understand that there is a benefit to seeing them and discussing them. So those are some thoughts and we will continue the journey of the voyage of the dawn treader in the next episode so thanks very much for tuning in and that's all i have to say for now <laughs>